Welcome to Latin American Intersections, where we explore the intersection of business, geopolitics, and social impact in the Latin American and Caribbean region. Our team is here to bring you the insights you need on current events from leaders and experts in the public, private, academic, and civic sectors. Latin American Intersections is presented by Ozilold Group, a consultancy focused on stakeholder relations and alternative risk reduction, building collaborations across sectors and industries to improve outcomes for clients and communities. Please keep in mind that the opinions, ideas, and information discussed on this podcast are those of the individual host and guest and do not necessarily reflect the official stances of organizations they are affiliated with. Be sure to follow at LATAM Podcast on your social media, share an episode or two with your friends, and send us your questions about the region. And don't forget to rate us on any of your favorite podcast apps. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Latin American Intersections, where we discuss geopolitics, business, and security in the Latin America and Caribbean region. I am here right now with Dr. Evan Ellis of the U.S. Army War College and also a fellow at a variety of different think tanks. Uh, Dr. Ellis is an expert in Latin America affairs and even more specifically the last few years uh, has done a lot of research in things like Chinese influence and investment in the region. So to keep in mind that this is something of a uh, global and national security, uh, regional security perspective. Uh, but at the same time, you can take to heart a lot of the information that's being put out there and your considerations in terms of uh, risk and social impact, as we like to discuss on this podcast from time to time. Um, and without further ado, uh, Dr. Ellis, uh, how are you doing? Very good. A pleasure to be on the podcast. Always a pleasure. It was great to have you for our discussion on Indian uh, investment in Latin America. Uh, oof, was that about two years ago now? Um, I think. <laughs> It's been a while, yes. Indeed. Um, so a lot has uh, changed, a lot hasn't changed in terms of specifically Chinese uh, investment in the Latin American Caribbean region. Um, I've been following a lot of the work that you do as well as a lot of my colleagues and including some which are probably our, our um, mutual colleagues in, in a variety of fields. And so with that being said, I guess the overarching question that, that I'd like to explore today and that I think you've spoken to in some of your recent articles and interviews, um, you know, I, let, let me just put this in perspective real quick on... Um, There's a lot of pessimism out there right now on the back of this COVID-19 pandemic across the world. Um, there's an article in The Economist that I received today uh, titled Goodbye Globalization. And without dipping into all the numbers, um, you can imagine a lot of what's being said about uh, the global economy and by extension, you know, what that means for different regions. Um, your article in... Um, your article in you'll have to remind me of the name here again in strategic the strategic studies institute united states army war college yes 
Um, and, and just from the title alone, you know, it's special commentary, COVID-19 shaping a sicker, poor, more violent, unstable Western hemisphere. So, you know, we'll get into some of the details that, that you go over in this article. Um, but it seems like, uh, you know, a lot of people aren't really positive about the outlook here, right? Um, you know, about the kinds of risks that, that um, may be shaping up throughout the region. And then also, you know, you know, that leaves a question mark on, okay, who's going to have the most influence there? Who stands to benefit from some of the volatility that's taking shape? Um, and I think you, you kind of get into that and, and past trends in terms of Sino, Latin American and Caribbean relations. Um, and so the big overarching question, question for me might be, so the globalization is basically being given its eulogy by many analysts, right? Um, you know, so is this the case or in your opinion, are we headed towards um, more of a new sort of hegemony in some ways, especially in certain regions, um, if we're talking Sino and, and regional um, relationships, you know, or is there a chance for greater regionalization instead of, you know, kind of this backwards movement into nationalism and by extension, these sets of weakened states throughout the world that are more susceptible to a new hegemon or um, other types of influence? Um, so that's kind of the overarching question, but I'd like you to kind of give us some background on, on your findings here in that space. Absolutely. And let me try to give you a bit of an extended answer here. Uh, first of all, with respect to your broader question, uh, we are not seeing the end of globalization by any means. Uh, it's very fashionable to say that, but, um, but uh, the interdependent nature of the global order in terms of financing and flows of, of goods and things like that um, may change in, in certain ways. Uh, so clearly there will be an imperative by companies uh, to diversify sources of supply. The enthusiasm of over-reliance on distant-time delivery from, you know, from uh, you know, Chinese producers solely and uh, on the other side of the world, I think has been exposed to vulnerabilities. And yet, even recognizing those vulnerabilities, uh, companies are not going to easily be able to um, to, to get away from them. Uh, uh, you are, I think, going to see you know some attempt to get towards more nearshoring, uh, some governments attempting to um, base uh, more ability in critical areas such as uh, medical or or industries uh, in their national territories. But again, you're going to have a continuity between um, what businesses and governments want. Diversify away from risks and the and the reality. Um, now, having said that, as you pointed out, um, there were uh, two articles, and let me try to unpack what I see happening in Latin America and the Caribbean, which actually is probably a cautionary tale for other parts of, of the of the uh, um, outside of, of the EU and, and the United States and, and some of the uh, the higher income countries. Hey, Evan, real quick, um, if you don't mind, just slowing down just a little bit. I think the the recording needs just half a second to catch up um, as you're speaking. Okay. Okay, so yes. continue. In, okay, let me. <clears throat> when you look at Latin America uh, and the impacts of the COVID crisis, 
there was a lot of speculation about how quickly the Latin American economy could recover. Would it be a couple of weeks? Would it be a month? Uh, you know, would, there, uh, would the economic effect last one quarter, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, when I began looking at this, I came to a, a much more worrisome conclusion, which is that, first of all, the combined health and economic effects and the interaction between them are likely to cause this crisis, not only in the United States and, and Europe, but also in Latin America to drag out much, much longer than many people assume, uh, probably well into 2021 or perhaps even beyond. And that there will be four mutually reinforcing negative effects. Uh, the health effects, as I mentioned before, the uh, economic effects, and by extension, the effects on the ability and resources of, of governments to do basic functions, uh, the effects with respect to um, crime and, and violence and insecurity, which is likely to significantly increase, and the effects on uh, prospects for political protest and, and political change. And so all of those four together uh, come to the conclusion we are likely to see a hemisphere with um, protracted, very negative performance, deep problems that the governments are not going to be able to address, and some very difficult policy choices. So let me try to unpack a little bit of those, and then uh, if you want to, after that, we can uh, talk a little bit about part two of this, which is what all of this means in Latin America and elsewhere for, for China and the U.S.-China strategic competition. Um, but with number one, of course, is the health effects. And is as widely acknowledged right now in Latin America, you have very weak public health sector. You have a little bit better in the private sector, although private sector hospitals are uh, generally somewhat smaller, although they are core to some degree in response to, to the virus. But um, the risk is the interaction between the um, the health effects in the opening of the economies. As is widely recognized in Latin America right now, you have very large informal sectors, people uh, who don't have regular access to uh, unemployment benefits or, or, the, or companies who can keep them on, who, who basically can't work from home from, from computers, have to be out in the streets interacting with or without masks and protected devices in order to, to just simply eat. Um, in addition to that, of course, uh, very vulnerable small business, businesses that may not have resources to be able to not operate for weeks or months at a time. We may go out of business permanently. And frankly, uh, banks who are ill-equipped to, to finance them. So what happened in the early phases of the crisis, of course, is that governments uh, began, uh, some more than others, generating enormous packages to you know, protect some of the informal workers, protect some of the, the, the businesses at risk, uh, expand new social programs. But frankly, uh, Latin American governments do not have the resources or ability to borrow to do that for more than a couple months. And so in a one or two year crisis, one of the things that happens is governments run out of money. And so what does that mean? Just the interacting economic effects and health effects. It's what we're seeing right now. Um, so uh, within the matter of weeks, uh, Latin American government recognized that, um, you know, that they had to reopen or the people would starve, even if they weren't killed by, by COVID. And so you see, for example, even in Colombia, which is relatively well off, 
that um, you know you have already 90 municipalities opening. Mexico, which has not yet hit the high point of its crisis, uh, is is already starting to reopen uh, various different parts of of different. Um, Brazil goes down on the executive level, trying to, to, to keep things open. Uh, certainly, with the uh, you know some pretty strong disagreements between President uh, Jair Bolsonaro and um, and the state and, and other uh, political leaders. But the bottom line is that those reopenings um, in a context of insufficient amounts of tests and insufficient amounts of of hospital beds and, and things like that mean that you are going to get um, periodic uh, resurgences, reinfections in different parts of the country, um, and that may or may not cause uh, reinfection or at least uh, operating for a long time amidst high infection rates um, and and basically limits in what those businesses can can do. Um, and so what does that mean? That means that governments are going to be running out of money, even as the lethality use over, over the next year. Um, so if you think about it, a government like Colombia, for example, or, or Mexico, which relies on, on oil export, um, oil prices are now at historically low level. These governments are seeing their revenues from commodity exports down. These governments are seeing their tax revenue down. Businesses are, are shuttered or, or are going out of business. Uh, they are seeing the purchases from international export partners like the United States and Europe lose because our demand for things like cars from Mexican factories are, are pretty low. Um, and um, you're also seeing that um, their, um, their expenses, government expenses, are going through the roof because having to pay out uh, you know, money to fight uh, having to greatly expanded social benefits, uh, having to um, you know, to operate uh, in, in different ways to, to purchase medical equipment. So the bottom line is you can do that for a little while, but as government run out of their ability to do that, governments are left with massive debts. And you're already seeing this now, for example, in Colombia, where the, uh, the finance ministry, Hacienda, declared that in July, um, other parts of the government were going to have to make major cuts in order to, uh, in order to um, free up continuing money for, for, for COVID. And so in already underperforming Latin American governments, you're going to have the ongoing health crisis, the ongoing lethality, governments not able to protect the um, you know, at-risk population groups which means more unemployment, more suffering, um, more um, frustration with, uh, with government performance. And frankly, it means that uh, temporary business shutdowns, because these businesses are not protected by the government then, uh, become permanent, which opens big holes in supply chains, which eliminates permanently significant parts of the, the middle class. Now, if that weren't bad enough, one of the other things you will increasingly see is um, the millions of people who are being put out on the streets, unemployed or have run out of, of private uh, informal sector opportunities, will you know, at least some of them to, to engage in, in, in petty crime to make ends meet or will be more open to by criminal gang So an increase in criminality across
across the region already plagued by. Uh, you're also going to see an increase in competition between groups. This is something that's um, but, uh, for example, if you are one of the gangs in Central America, Mara Salvatruch or Barrio Diciocho, what often happens is that you get a lot of your revenues from you know, extorting uh, nightclub owners, extorting taxi operators in your neighborhood, extorting bus operators in your neighborhood. What's happening with COVID right now? Well, the nightclubs are closed and will probably continue to be closed for a while. Not as many taxis are coming through the neighborhood. Not as many buses are coming from the neighborhood. The mom and grocery store that you used to extort is shuttered. And so, ironic as it may seem, the are actually hurting and they are having to look for new sources of revenue. Um, also cartels are also hurting, as well as human smuggling organizations. What happens when you fundamentally close borders to commercial traffic? Um, it becomes difficult to smuggle other things through using people as drug mules, or, you know, frankly, when you don't have commercial shipments flowing, those, um, those single narco flights become very obvious on people's radars. So what happens in this context is that it's putting pressure even on the, the drug cartel and smuggling. Even things is, is, is seemingly and it's actually getting harder for mercury to, to loose gold out of the um, out, out of the ground um, and, and think an illegal mining community that is supported for example by in prostitution um, devastating effect on those populations with a lack of sanitary controls and so what you're ironically seeing is that this is actually creating a lot of havoc even in criminal that will ultimately result in greater, not only greater crime, but greater violence between criminal groups. Um, and then finally, if we talk about social protest, uh, so as you recall, in October, starting in Ecuador, again, uh, mass protests in Chile, and then some of the mass protests in Colombia. What, um, and those died down at the time and then were somewhat forgotten about with the social distancing of, of COVID. But to the extent that those were fundamentally about people's frustration with government performance, think about where COVID leaves us. You have frustration with inadequate health systems causing people to die. You have frustration with government shutdowns. Some people say they happen too quick putting too many people out of work. Other people said they didn't happen quick enough, causing die. You have numerous cases now of graft and corruption associated with the emergency COVID spending um, and the politicians who, who may have stolen the money. Um, you will have increases in organized crime and citizen frustration that the government will not have money to do things with that. I mentioned cutbacks in government services. So you know, again, um, you know, when people are paying more with more problems and less services, the combined effect, I think, on when we have the opportunity to to have once again, you know, large get togethers, and you're already seeing some protests in the region by twenty twenty, maybe twenty twenty. Um, the return in many countries of the large scale protests without. Precedent. And then to finally wrap this all together, uh, 
what you also have now is that this virus has fundamentally caused people to reevaluate what they expect or should expect from their government. Is government all about providing maximum opportunities for, for making money, or is it pro about providing some acceptable opportunity to make money, but also protecting one from the, the dangers of a, an interdependent global order? And so I think what you're going to see is, again, social protests, a lot of social stresses, um, a lot of new ideas about government that all wraps together into the prospects for massive political change across the, the region. So, um, you know, so if you've been with me for this extended analysis, what I think I'm trying to say is that bring the package all together, the, the combination of, um, of the health effects, the economic effects, the crime and security effects, and the, the social protest and political effects. And we are going to see a very, very chaotic um, region, uh, which is ironically a region with which uh, we are intimately connected by ties of family in the United States, um, in which uh, directly impacts U.S. businesses who operate there, that directly impacts the supply chain which import from there, and directly impacts U.S. security, given the flow of people between U.S. and in, in the region. So, um, so for U.S., investors, politicians, and just Americans in general, um, what this means for the region is probably a really, really big deal that we're only just now starting to, to scratch the surface. Before I, I jump in here, do you, do you have anything else to add to that? <laughs> um, we can talk, I mean, we can talk about the, the can talk about China in a bit, but I, I wanted to uh, give you a chance to uh, to, 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 right. to breathe there and see where you wanted to go from uh, there. Information and analysis, and uh, you know, clearly, I, I think I think when it comes to what is most immediately impacting people on the ground, right? Uh, you know, we can sit about policymakers' concerns might be, but I, you know, I think you you hit you you really hit on two two key points and that is that you know you have an inordinate number of people that are part of the in sector in in many of these economies right and that by mm -hmm. extension can can exacerbate both the uh the health crisis and the economical crisis i mean like you like you pointed out i mean people in the informal sector are making their money who they're going to eat that day um you know there's real very little saving going on in the informal economy so you know this is, a, this is a big factor when it comes to the considerations and the risks of uh, you know having waves of this pandemic um of course right yes i think that we're all seeing yes. like a pretty substantial expansion of that um when we look at at other uh regional security indicators um and, and all this does tie in together these are all okay how do we get through this crisis right u.s yeah a lot more people are working from home um we have stimulus yeah. packages if you're canadian you're getting a pretty decent stimulus package for the next few months at least um in mm -hmm. you know to their credit um I think in another podcast, we pointed out that many Latin American and Caribbean countries um, closed their borders, shut down flights um, relatively early in this crisis. 
able to to remain down is really not something that any of these these places can can weather right um not to mention of course you know the the that yeah. what little revenue is coming in what little sectors that they're currently receiving a lot of that um is susceptible to corruption um we've seen it in some places um I won't. I won't get too too deep into it. But there's some places we'll just say that are close to inordinate amount of corruption when it comes to uh, the purchasing of medical supplies that have never arrived. Right. Um, several places have have experienced that or have have paid um, exponentially for uh, just basic tangents here. I think. You know, we've painted this picture of what's going on and what's likely to happen. And so the 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 focus that you have in your article and in your research is what is China's response going to be to it? Right. Caribbean um, should be concerned about what it is that U.S. um, national security interests in the hemisphere should be concerned about. And. You know, what is it that, that China looks like it is positioning itself to be able to do? Absolutely. Now, wait, I have um, one so big let me, uh, let me try to take that on right? now. So a lot of people and, aren't necessarily paying uh, attention to this. So, My biggest question on this, we know that China is going to... You know, analysis is showing that China is likely to expand and increase its influence in the region. My big question right up front is, does China have the resource on the back of this crisis to continue to engage during the rate at which it was doing so in previous years? And I would say that the answer to that is is absolutely yes, and certainly relative to the very difficult position that the U.S. and the EU and, and other developed nations are going to find themselves in. Um, essentially, it, it's uh, um, to start out, uh, China was already well on its way to expanding uh, it, its role in global supply chains, advancing the, uh, the position of its company in terms of their global presence, wealth and power in terms of technological sophistication uh, and really constructing a world in which in many ways China increasingly benefited from the flows of, of commerce and, and, and center and so this crisis in many ways does not uh, alter the trajectory of China but it accelerates the path that China was already on and um, the principal reason that it does so uh, first of all is that China is emerging from the crisis Hey, Evan, can you hear me? And earlier okay, good. Um, can, you, can you go back about yes, I can um, hear you. 10 seconds? Can you hear me? Um, yeah. Connection there, everyone. Um, sure. Evan, if you could continue. Sure. China is uh, coming out of the crisis about, uh, uh, you know, <clears throat> let me start again. The first part of, of the reason for China to be able to deepen and accelerate uh, its uh, increasing engagements um, in strategic position in Latin America and in the rest of the world is because it is coming out of the crisis far more quickly 
and in a healthy fashion, whereas the U.S. and the West, uh, including the EU, are likely to remain stuck for some time. And frankly, um, Latin America and other parts of the less developed world are likely to remain in very, very difficult situations, uh, health-wise, economically, politically, and in other matters uh, for reasons that I just explained. But on the Chinese side, in part because of the government's use of its authoritarian controls over the um, you know, over its population, it was able to successfully implement quarantine despite some of the early difficulties with the botching of, of the curfew in, in Wuhan and in other details, and, and despite obviously the, the suppression of information about the virus. But um, as it began to get through the health effects, it also was able to use its government coordination and resources, including about $900 billion that it is sitting on in foreign currency reserves, as well as substantial private and, um, and, uh, and, and, and government uh, savings to be able to uh, begin to mobilize its, its economy and get its production capabilities back up and running. And so the forecasts suggest that even though the Chinese economy shrunk by about 6.8% in the first quarter, as it was hit most hard by the virus, uh, it is likely to have on balance at least positive growth, albeit not the 6% annual growth that it had before the crisis. So what that means in the context of a you know, United States and a Europe, which is probably going to continue to have new outbreaks and partially economic shuttering, and will continue to have um, you know, very difficult, uh, difficult uh, positions, uh, is that uh, it gives China an opportunity. Indeed, the head of, of the Fed uh, recently uh, predicted that China will, um, I'm sorry, that the, that the U.S. may not see positive economic growth until the end of 2021. Uh, recently, also, the head of the IMF said that the world economy, especially the developed nations, also uh, may not see uh, positive growth until 2021. So this is not something that we're going to come out of in a quarter, which means that right now, China will be, for the next year or possibly two, the leading motor of growth in the global economy. Now, to put this in broader context, um, on the one, one hand, because of the ongoing because of the length and depth of that um, difficulty in the West as, as governments run out of money, you are going to see gaps open up in supply chains, bankruptcies and things like that. So in the beginning of our conversation, you asked about you know, globalization. And although a lot of people will talk about nearshoring and domestic production, the reality is that given the need for ongoing production, you will probably actually see Chinese companies expand their role in global supply chains, uh, taking advantage of bankruptcies and opportunities. Number two, just like you saw in 2008, you are going to see um, Western companies trying to shore up their uh, financial positions by selling off assets, especially assets in other parts of the world away from their home base, like, for example, U.S. and European um, operations in Latin America, uh, in, in, in elsewhere, in sectors like mining, petroleum, et cetera. And who is going to be positioned, like in 2008, to, to buy those? Uh, well, the Chinese, who a lot of bargains. They will be uh, cash in which asset prices will be very low. So we're, of, like we mentioned in another podcast, we're talking, you know, bargain basement so, um, prices, as it was worded, uh, in the Latin America region. And China is going to be the one with the most cash to be able to, to um 
to buy those up, you know, relative to other other countries. Yes. Exactly. Just as happened in 2008, 2010, but on an order of magnitude greater um, this time around. The um, and then, of course, uh, beyond that, you are also going to have uh, the opportunity hey, Evan, to uh, intervene Evan, let me and, and help out. When you say order of magnitude so greater you than in 2008, yes. um, do you have a guesstimate for us? It's it's hard it's hard to be sure, but you know if you recognize that in 2008 uh, you had uh, you know a sudden influx of about 10 to 20 billion dollars per year in Chinese merger and acquisition activities, uh, whereas previous to the crisis it had been you know maybe you know one to two yeah. billion. Well, in year so, to year, it didn't go. Um, you know, it didn't go I, back I down that, too you know, much either. I think jump. last year it was twelve point eight billion in Latin America, up from up from sixteen point five up sixteen point five percent in two thousand eighteen, according to uh, Dialogochino uh, net. Yeah, there, there was a bit of a hiccup uh, last last year um, in terms of, of loans as well as uh, as well as. Uh, as a non-financial FDI, uh, but I, I think the overall figure uh, you went from about 10 billion before 2008 of, of sunk FDI in the region to I believe about 123 billion by 2015, uh, and then again um, it trailed off just a little bit from that 10 to 20 billion rate last year. Uh, the uh, Chinese loans to the region by China Development Bank and um, China Exim Bank, the, the two big uh, Chinese policy banks, uh, had gotten up to about $144 billion again from about 2005. And this is according to the Kevin Gallagher now, of Boston University. Real quick, and the um, American Dialogue for, for everyone's knowledge but, here, but again, policy um, banks, are yes. they directly backing um, Latin American ventures or are they primarily backing um, Chinese businesses in the region? In Chinese foreign direct investment, the they're actually backing both, and that's a, a commonly misunderstood uh, idea. Um, part of the loans are often loans to governments. So, um, you know, if you're talking about the construction of a hydroelectric facility, if the government actually wants to pay, or a government entity wants to pay or a railroad across the country. Typically, the fact that the Chinese are offering the loan means that uh, you know, the Chinese will insist on their company doing the work and their subcontractors and, and typically with relaxed conditions for Chinese labor. Now on that note, you know, Evan, the ability Evan on that note, you've, you've mentioned um, before, however, um, I think in the Spanish language article here that I'm looking at, um, the, the, the regional pushback, right? The local regional pushback on um, the Chinese bringing in their own people, their own assets to go ahead and, and fulfill these types of contracts. Like how much of that, um, it, you know, is actually happening? How much per pushback is there, you know, versus what is, <laughs> you know, versus what is actually obtained through that pushback and, you know, and, and moving to the future, like how much of that is going to be effective in terms of negotiations with China? Because you kind of address that, you do address that in your article. And so, you know, if you could speak to that for half a second. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And this is a very important point, and it's supported by what happened actually after 2008 as well, because as China bought new assets, is it, is it bought um, new oil fields, is it bought new mining operations, and then stepped in with its people and began to operate them, you began to see a lot of, um, a lot of tension in terms of uh, Chinese management versus uh, labor expectation. Uh, communities, uh, respect for environmental and, and other laws. And so you can look at a whole series of, of different incidents in Peru and elsewhere that occurred over the years that followed that really trace back to right. the expanded presence of Chinese companies. And well, and anyone that's not familiar with, with, the with Latin America, so um, by, the, by the same labor historically, I mean, despite any economic issues that each country in the region has, most of them have pretty strong uh, labor and local labor laws uh, when it comes to any type of investment in the country. So it's kind of interesting how much many of these countries have capitulated uh, to to at least that aspect of Chinese influence. And I just want to throw that in there as a side note. And it's a good point. And generally, uh, the level of capitulation reflects uh, the negotiating position of, of the government. So you have situations, for example, the Venezuelan government under Hugo Chavez and later um, Maduro, they were fully complicit and, and pretty much let the Chinese do whatever they wanted in the interior as long as they were getting their cuts. You had other cases where it was a more mixed bag or, for example, in the Caribbean, where um, they let in a lot of Chinese workers and especially but tried to insist on um, you know, but uh, you know, try to apply some local laws, and you you had some cases like Brazil, where you know, local uh, unions and, and even government bureaucracies were able to to push back uh, quite hard. So there is a very but that's a problem across the region. But as you pointed out, the real concern is that if we can expect a significant expansion in China's physical presence, based on the assets that it's going to acquire during the current period. Uh, you can expect a, a similar uh, you know, increase in actually several things in, that you did not experience in 2008. Uh, so what you did experience and will experience even more is um, you know, the new companies or new owners coming in and facing those same types of social conflict and conflict with governments, et cetera. Um, second, the Chinese government, obviously the Chinese companies will have uh, a lot of, um, of problems with crime and insecurity. Remember my observation that the Chinese, uh, that, the, that Latin America is going to become an even more dangerous, uh, insecure place with higher levels of criminality. Well, the, the Chinese, new Chinese owners are going to come right into that. And we only can you have to remember back to, for example, Colombia with the, the kidnapping of Emerald Energy workers in, in the interior of Colombia in 2008, or, for example, uh, the overrunning of Chinese oil Ecuador six. Uh, Latin America is you, you're going to see China having to contract local private security, bringing private stuff. You, know, you may have seen from the, the famous Chinese movie Wolf Warrior, but it, it's becoming a very important uh, dynamic. Um, and the Chinese government's interest in, in working more closely with Latin American police forces to to do those private security, um, or at least to, to provide some security for their, their companies and to help get back you know, people Do who any of are these you know, kidnapped or, or otherwise threatened. So, um, slow so down, you slow already... um, Chinese movements in the region at all? Or is it usually just, you know, a, a 
more like a small hindrance or annoyance, something that they just have to like factor into to where they're going to be and what they're going to be doing uh, overall. Well, generally, the security threats, at least based on, on past evidence, have not slowed the Chinese down. I mean, there have been a few cases like the Paducha 3 uh, um, uh, hydroelectric project where some of the local uh, local political threats, which ended up translating into you know physical security threats against the Chinese operators, did, did slow things down. But in general, what slows things down is when you have a, a local social protest which has some sort of legal basis or political resonance in the country where the leadership in the country says, okay, um, you know, we cannot authorize you to begin construction until this issue is resolved, until this environmental, et cetera. And I think what you're going to begin to see now is that whereas in the past, Chinese projects were oftentimes delayed by this local pushback, uh, and you see it in the Dominican Republic, you, you see it um, you know, really across the board. Now, with relatively slack U.S. and European demand uh, for, you know, for Latin American products and basically U.S. and European investors getting out of the country, you will find local Latin American governments a lot less willing to put obstacles to the Chinese and to cause problems for the Chinese, which is a way of saying that I think you'll see some but probably fewer delays because the Chinese bargaining position will now be much stronger than it was before. Um, and that position will come in in the context of greater resentment. Again, you will have the, the difficulties of you know, Chinese management practices as you had before, but you also have a world that distrusted the Chinese in the first place, even while they hoped to gain from them, and now is very aware of you know, the, um, the accusations about, you know, who caused the virus, whether it came from a, you know, a laboratory in, in the virology laboratory in Wuhan, but certainly follows uh, to some degree the, the stories that uh, the, um, you know, the Chinese uh, delays in reporting and the suppression right. of, of, w, uh, of WHO, World Health Organization, right. uh, uh, cost the world maybe four to six weeks in response. In other words, um, it may be that the world wouldn't have gone through this had so, the Chinese but Evan, how, been how much of, coming in, in, in how transparent. Much of and so it's that idea that, that the Chinese have, are somewhat to blame for the spreading of this virus, right? In and especially in regards to Latin America, you know, do will Latin American and Caribbean um, peoples and governments actually do, do they actually harbor that sort of social I, I don't know what to call it, social dissatisfaction with China over over that idea? Or is that I guess I guess I. I it doesn't seem like there's a lot of people that I've run into in the region that, my, that really my sense sit is there in and, 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 um, and stew over the, the idea that it's, that any of this is, is, is directly China's fault or, it, you know, outside of, Hey, you know, it's, it's kind of a, it's, it's a little bit unsettling that, perhaps China is leveraging this crisis to make these types of economic movements, as it were, in the region. But as far as, as this blame for the crisis, I don't know if I've personally seen that. Is that a, a social trend that we're seeing otherwise? 
Well, the big thing where you see reluctance is the people in the region, as you point out, um, don't resonate when the U.S. makes the accusation, because when the U.S. makes the accusation, it's seen as is just one great power competing against another um, and Latin America in the crossfire. But when it's not the U.S. who is the messenger, I think there's a general understanding of, of the fact that uh, the, the, the Chinese really were, were to blame for this. Um, and so my point is not necessarily what's happening right now to get through the, the crisis. Um, but what happens tomorrow when people um, wake up to find themselves um, with new Chinese employers who uh, have practices that uh, they're not particularly comfortable with and um, start thinking back with the same type of essentially neo-colonialist resentment that Latin Americans have applied in the past towards U.S. and European co- countries and say, you know, how is it that when the Chinese started this virus, we're now right. the Chinese who have benefited from this? So, so I think I think that resentment will be fueled not by U.S. rhetoric so much is the bad aftertaste of finding themselves working for the Chinese, knowing that um, you know that it was really the Chinese that brings me to a quick that brings me but to a quick question, Evan. How much of that sentiment may or may not be tempered by something you mentioned um, in this other interview about um, Latin American and Caribbean? Uh, policymakers and business leaders um, and other sorts of influencers and advisors who have been essentially educated on the back of of Chinese scholarships in China. Right. I think that's I think that's what that um, particular section I was reading uh, was was discussing yes. at that point. And, you know, how much of that um, and, and you mentioned in the article, but how much of that do you think will temper some of those sentiments or sort of create a segue into into acceptance of you know the this new Chinese management and groups of laborers for specific projects or even people that are there for specific projects and then settle in Latin America you know over the long term. So how much of those sentiments not not just policy influence right because because we know that there's policy influence by those that have. Um, a connection to China. And that can be said for anywhere in the world, you know, that can be said for, you know, for, for different groups within the US in other regions, but specific to Latin America, how much do you think that those individuals that you're referring to, on that point may have influence socially, as well as politically? Well, as you point out, um, in the context of all of these challenges, China will have multiple sources of um, of, of leverage, um, and one of them, of course, is the the fact that they are going to be much more of an important source of of, of commerce, investment, etc. So, Latin American governments will want to avoid being being too critical. Number two, as you pointed out, uh, is exactly this question of soft power. So, you have businessmen who you know are hopeful of being the, the partners to the Chinese firms who are reluctant to speak out negatively who are actually seeking to, to woo the Chinese and those those incentives will increase with the Chinese presence uh, number three um, you have to, to some degree you do have Latin American policy makers who exactly who had gone over to China and had gotten their China expertise on Hanban scholarships in Chinese universities, you know, they've gotten their Mandarin, gotten their knowledge. And so, you know, as these 
is these government officials try to evaluate or negotiate with the Chinese. You know, they they're the Chinese are starting out with a with 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 a friend in the negotiating chair. But even beyond that, you also have the suppression of discourse in the media and by think tanks and academics, uh, also thanks to China's people to people diplomacy. And this is something that's not often talked about. But um, you know, literally thousands of people over for relatively short trips to, to China. Typically, they are influencers. So leading journalists, uh, leading um, you know, think tank professionals sometimes to, to give a speech uh, to right. a, a quasi-governmental institution, uh, all expense-paid trips. Um, but what that means is that those who are the recipients of, of that largesse are very reluctant to be excessively critical because they're afraid of, of losing that access in the future. And, and so as a result, the very people who Latin America depend on most to speak with detail and credibility about the nature of the Chinese challenge and the Chinese threat are those who are most reluctant so to say anything this is sort of like critical. And so as a result- Versus suppression though. Yeah. Is that kind of what we're, what we're likely to see here is, is sort of like this- the, the like you said people want to be able to maintain that access and and therefore the quid pro quo to that is is speaking positively of china and and avoiding discussions that could put it in a negative uh we'll call it geoeconomic light right exactly it's it's a it's the curtailing of the critical debate on all sides, as I, as I just mentioned. So, you know, the government officials want the Chinese investment, so they don't want to talk ill about the Chinese. The business, the local businessmen want the Chinese as a partner, so they don't want to talk ill about the Chinese. The journalists, think tank people, and academics, um, you know, want continued access to China, so they don't want to talk ill about the Chinese. And so you basically have you know, distrustful, disgruntled populations facing a discourse where nobody is talking critically about what's happening other than people who are dismissed because they seem not to be China experts, so to speak. And so um, it it creates for a very disconnected discourse and the possibility for, uh, you know, anti-Chinese, you know, social protests to, to spring up, but, you know, seemingly out of nowhere because they don't seem to be connected with what you hear about in the news from the government or, or from the media. So, so I think it's going to what are, what are possibility some of uh, recent surprise. activities in the last couple of years that, that, um, that speak specifically to that. I mean, I, I know they're having like massive protests against Chinese involvement, but, um, you know, what, what has there been that kind of speaks to that sort of disgruntled nature of, of the average Latin American, um, and, and their particular, um, perception or view of of Chinese influence at their level. You see it in various different places. So, for example, in 2017 in Colombia, in, in a Bogota suburb, where there was a lot of resentment about the perceived invasion by um, by, by by Chinese uh, shopkeepers and what had traditionally been, um, you know, uh, Colombian uh, businesses, uh, you, you actually saw violence ag- against those shopkeepers in places like like Suriname, where things that had been in a very cozy relationship with the Butersi government. You saw in in a place called Maripaistan and a place called Papatnam protests against uh, Chinese shopkeepers no. for their, their local practices. Uh, you had. In Dominican Republic in, in 2014, I believe it was, when they shut down downtown Santo Domingo with, with protests against the, the Chinese. You saw it in Argentina, frankly, 
um, you know, with uh, under uh, Christina Fernandez de Kirchner, where uh, people in the name of protesting against Christina actually decided that the best way to protest against Christina was to, to, wow. to basically rob and loot Chinese now, stores. And so one is some left of this, though, idea, where it, is you know, this coming? some of this sounds like just unadulterated xenophobia. Right. But how much of it is like, say, larger labor disputes involving Chinese companies and um, you know, and potentially uh, Chinese policy within these with this in these countries. I mean, is there a percentage that we can speak to on this as far as like and obviously the unrest that's directed at, say, Chinese shops or shopkeepers and things like this that that may have a larger overarching theme to it. But how much of this that that we're that we're bringing up here um, were was brought to the table as, say, a, a legitimate labor dispute? versus lashing out at a particular uh, demographic. And there actually are a number of different labor disputes. Uh, so you, and you find a lot of these in the Peruvian mining sector. So uh, most recently, uh, the, um, in the, the Las Bombas mine, you've had uh, a series of disputes that people have actually been uh, killed um, in protests over uh, China min metals in, in a way that they've uh, run, the, run that mine. Um, you had for years and years to, um, uh, almost an annual, sometimes multiple annual uh, strikes against uh, the, the company Shogangero um, in Marcona, in, in the south of, of Peru, over the operation of, of their mine. Uh, you have, um, again, in, in Ecuador, you had uh, the overrunning of the, um, of the oil fields, uh, Chinese-run oil fields in, in Tarapoa, um, and, and later in, in Oriana in 2007. Uh, 2007, to the point where they had to actually declare a national state of, of emergency uh, in, I believe, it was MMG in, in Argentina in one of the, uh, the, the mines there. You, you had some. Um, so it doesn't get a lot of attention in, in Washington, but basically, as soon as the Chinese uh, started coming in um, and again imposing labor practices, which maybe made sense from the perspective of the Chinese parent organization in Beijing or Shanghai but didn't accommodate the style of local laborers, you, you did start getting those, those, those labor disputes as well. And so, um, so it, it is, it is, it's not ubiquitous, but there is a, a certain level of, of resentment. And I think again, with the expanding Chinese presence, you're going to see, you're going to see an expansion of exactly this type of frustration because it will be not only frustration with the presence, like you saw in 2008 and, and the, and, and the just, clumsy way that new Chinese companies sometimes operate, but it will be augmented by the fact that I just mentioned that the broader context of we got here through coronavirus. And so I think those, the, the combination of those two will make this round worse than, than what we saw in, in the post-2000. Now, here's, here's a kind of an overarching question then. Is it within Chinese interests to see more stability in the region and to promote that in some way, shape or form with some form of behavior or uh, policy regarding investment in the region? Or um, is it within their interest to sort of ride on the back of this regional volatility, as it were, uh, continuously? I mean, we can definitely see how, how people are turning, um, you know, threats into opportunities, as it were. And we can see that all across the world, you know, and you know, investors from all areas, we can see that in terms of what different governments are doing, right? But specifically, when it comes to Chinese policy in Latin America, outside of this window of opportunity, as it were, to, to, 
invest while other countries are sort of looking inward, um, are they going to want to let, let instability flourish, as it were, or is it within their interest to promote stability in the region in some way, shape or form, whatever form that takes? You know, that's a that's a different argument, right? Well, the Chinese government has, has tried, uh, you know, for quite some time to get its companies to behave in a more responsive fashion. Uh, you constantly have you know, differences between what the Ministry of Commerce wants to, to maximize the, the Chinese presence um, and what the Ministry of Foreign Affairs wants uh, to, to not have its companies basically. Right. Uh, and most of these companies do answer in some way, shape or form to the government. So, right? uh, the government's one of the primary investors in most of these companies. Am I am I off on that? I. I you know, compared to say, um, you know, a lot of like I, I once worked for a Norwegian company in the region, and I remember specifically that um, some of the company leads had to report directly to um, the di diplomatic services for Norway on occasion because you know the Norway Norwegian sovereign wealth fund was was one of the heaviest investors in this company as well as others, right? Is that similar with China? I mean, do their business leaders have to respond to policymakers and Chinese diplomats? Or is that more of a, you know, it's it's better if you do kind of thing? It depends on the type of company involved. And so clearly the state-owned enterprises um, are subject to a lot of, of different legal and, and other controls. But even uh, private companies uh, such as Sani Heavy Industries, for, for example, in the, um, in, in the heavy manufacturing equipment sector, um, even though that is technically um, not a state-owned enterprise, um, its, uh, its uh, head is actually um, a senior person in the Chinese uh, Communist Party. And so they're essentially uh, party disciplinary mechanisms as well as, uh, as, well as legal regulatory. Um, I mean, in China, there are ways of getting at uh, just about any, any company to bend it in the direction that you want, and certainly much more than in the United States. And of course, um, you know, the question of whether it is a, a largely national SOE versus a more provincially oriented SOE, for example, like the um, Anhui-based automotive uh, company Cherry. Uh, um, now, there are some groups of, of, you know, kind of families of Chinese investors that, um, you know, again, are, you know, just go in Latin America and, and uh, you know, maybe, you know, are more detached from the government. But like any place else, um, the amount of attention and support you get from the Chinese government depends on how big you are and, and how closely you are affiliated with, with the Chinese state. And so um, sometimes there's confusion about you know, to what degree these some of the initiatives of, of these small familial uh, investment groups in sectors like agricultural really should be confused with the the, the big SOEs. But um, but yeah, clearly with so social, some of those investors, uh, social, it might be more a question uh, of if any of policies. their investments align with um, Chinese movements in the region and other types of FDI. It might be more a matter of you know insider information. And, and making a, a solid investment in a particular commodity, right? Versus actual, um, I guess you could say policy aligned investing. Is that kind of what? Yeah, there's a certain amount of, there's a certain amount of herding cats, but 
the Chinese government makes it very clear um, which sectors are encouraged and rewarded. Um, and if you're dealing with a Chinese banking partner, uh, you know, as opposed to just a, a familial group of, of people putting up money, um, you know, the banks are also, you know, clear on, you know, where they would invest based on, on what sectors and, and countries have been essentially, you know, blessed. And um, so, so there's a lot of different mechanisms for doing the policy signals. Um, and it's, it's to say that not every Chinese company is, is perfectly aligned. And there are clearly some that cause more trouble and headaches for the Chinese government. And they do try through guidelines on environmental and other regulation to bring their com companies into, in, into line. Um, but you know, often mistakes are made and, and, you know, and, and things happen you know, with Chinese okay. companies. Just like, so just like now, um, Evan, we probably need to wrap some things up. There's about 20 different questions that we could get into here and we might have to have a more mm -hmm. extended conversation, uh, you know, maybe a little round table with some other um, uh, with some other experts in the region uh, that, that operate in, in various spaces, right? Um, now, again, a lot of this, as I said before, from the beginning, um, we're looking at this probably through a national security lens, right? A U.S. national security lens and how that relates to, um, you know, global security and, and, um, and um, regional stabilization and, and such, right? So... And and I and though I think you've spoken to to sort of the regional perspectives here, uh, you know, if if we can, can we take our our national security lenses almost completely off and really take a and and I want to get your take on on Chinese investment in the region on the back of this particular pandemic, right? On the back of COVID nineteen, how welcome or unwelcome is it? And how good or good is it not? You know, is it is it worth the price to invite that investment or allow that investment into each one of these countries or into the region as a whole? You know, you know, and, and obviously there's probably a lot of nuance to an answer to that type of question. But as a you know, it's kind of a backgrounder. If I'm discussing this with, say, the former ambassador of Chile to um, to China and India, his response might be more along the lines, we welcome investment. You know, why, why would we not want, um, you know, investment, whether it comes from the U.S. or from China or from India? Why would we not want these engineers to come here and and, you know, help us build our roads or infrastructure, or whatever, if it's if it means a win, win, win all the way around. Right. So the, the question is, is how nefarious right. well, is this? Are these Chinese investment policies considered? specifically by Latin American governments. And then two, how, you know, what, what are the drawbacks if, if I'm a Latin American country and I really need to worry about myself on the back of this, this COVID-19 crisis, if I'm the policymaker, is it really such a bad thing for me to allow the amount of investment that the Chinese seem, seem ready to offer me, right, in various sectors? Can you speak to that on a minute? Like, are we able to take the, the national security lens off and still speak to kind of the risks that are the policymakers are running by accepting this? Or is it is it mostly just opportunity? In, in general, uh, you know, there are positive elements of, of uh, money, whether it's from China or Asia or, or the United States, et cetera. Um, obviously, some uh, investors are, are less risky and, and generate uh, more sustainable value propositions. I think you have to take a look at, at the combination of the, the 
essentially the strength of the government and the vulnerabilities of the government who is who's welcoming the investor in and the characteristics of the, the investor. What often happens is that in the case of many Latin American countries, especially in the Caribbean, but also elsewhere, when governments are weakly institutionalized, when you have relatively limited staffs to do technical assessments of whether you need a project in the first place and, and what the contractual details of the project are, um, when governments are willing to negotiate particular deals, <coughs> Um, you know, government to government deals, it creates a situation where, where if you have, you know, investors like the U.S., <coughs> where, you know, um, you know, people are governed by the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, et cetera, uh, you, um, you can still have, you know, deals which, um, you know, even with with poorly institutionalized regimes, um, you know, are not you know necessarily corrupt. Uh, what happens when you have uh, weak regimes with poor oversight and essentially predatory investors is that it sets up the possibility that the that the benefit will not go to the country. The benefit will go to the individuals involved. Corruption and criminality. Um, at the end could, of the day, that will just be unprofitable. So this says really two things. No um, one that if a government well, and, and, and vice versa. So the the risk, the risks of your investment with the Chinese not going well goes up. The more that you know your government is corrupt or your government does not have an effective capability to do oversight and analysis and things like that. Um, the degree to which you you do have established procedures and alternatives and the ability to impose controls over corruption through transparency, it means that um, you know, even uh, predatory investors like the Chinese, you can get some benefit from them. So, um, so really, the, the answer to the question is that um, you know one way to get a better deal from the Chinese is to make sure that you are doing so in a framework of transparency and good governance. And if you don't have the good governance, you probably should get it and get uh, corruption down before you enter major deals with the Chinese. Because if you enter government deals with the Chinese in a non-transparent way with you know ineffective populist regimes, um, you know it's not going to benefit the people. And so at the end of the day, if you if you don't have those type of controls, you're better off with somebody who polices themselves like, you know, the U.S. and U.S. investors. Um, so you know, at the end of the day, if you do have those controls or can impose them, um, you know, you, you still can get some, you know, a, a lot of positive benefit from, you know, Chinese resources and, and loans. You just you just have to keep on the Chinese. Uh, Excellent point. Uh, to, you know, to make again, sure like, that, that definitely having that eye for doing what they agree to do and that you are getting the benefit that you expect that. out of it. Um, so, um, one last one last question here. Um, the I, I if there was a a policy recommendation to be had, what or what what kind of incentives? So so going back to a national security um, perspective, you know, from the U.S.'s point of view, right, for the region, what kind of incentives are are even possible on the back of this crisis to promote more? Um, U.S. favorable investment in the region, whether that is um, actual U.S. investors or U.S. allies or um, or even extra regional U.S. allies like India. What you know, what incentives can be created 
um, to keep um, investors and countries that have already been investing in the region? What, you know, is there anything that can be done to keep everyone from looking completely inward and promoting um, more investment in the region? You know, not so much, I don't want to say as a counter to Chinese investment, but let's call it more of a balance. Is there a way to promote and incentivize a sort of balance in terms of foreign direct investment in the region that um, at least, you know, if it doesn't completely favor U.S. national security policy and interests, does it at least create a more, I, I guess I'd call it a level playing field? The... Um... Well, clearly you have a number of U.S. Uh, programs that uh, are in place and have some promise. I mean, the Development Finance Corporation, uh, the America Crazy Initiative, which, which seeks to leverage private sector investment, um, uh, which is far more greater than, uh, you know, than government programs. But clearly, uh, you know, you know, things like USAID's Clear Choice also has uh, things to, to offer. Um, overall, though, uh, given the COVID crisis, uh, what you really have is a fundamental choice that the United States, that basically whoever is in power in January 2021 is, is going to face, which is um, do you wall yourself off from the region yet to an unprecedented degree, or do you work uh, constructively with the region, not only in encouraging private sector investment that provides alternatives to the predatory Chinese investment, but do you try to strengthen governance? And at the same time, as you alluded to, do you work with partners uh, who are like-minded and also share those values like the Japanese, like the Koreans, like, like the Europeans, um, in order to um, you know, build up a region that together everyone can uh, have um, you know, a positive business experience with and, uh, and, and security that is shared for, for, for all, especially here in the United States, where we are so closely tied to, to what happens in the region in, in human terms and in other terms. And so at the end of the day, there are promising programs, but you re it's really about making the choice of whether we believe in uh, trying to work together to make our neighborhood safer for all or whether we believe that uh, things are, are so bad that we just try to, to wall ourselves off from the neighborhood. And, uh, and I would argue that uh, uh, you know, given the interdependent global economy, um, you cannot build walls high enough for, for, for that. Okay, okay. Uh, I have one more wild card question. And if Okay, I'm, I'm not, I'm, the audio is not coming through. I'm not sure what happened, but I, I think uh, the connection's gone bad. Hello? Hello? Okay, you can cut this out later, but I will, uh, I'm, I'm going to thank you. And then so you can use my, my thanks and, and then just end it from there. Michael, it's been a pleasure to be on the program. Thank you for having me on. And I look forward to being with you in other podcasts in the future. Thank you. All right, everyone, as you've probably guessed by now, we have had some connectivity issues today, but I hope you're able to get a lot out of that particular discussion. Uh, in spite of those connectivity issues, uh, Dr. Ellis is definitely one of the foremost experts on the subject matter at hand. 
and I encourage you all to read his work. Uh, here I am doing a little bit of a shameless plug on his behalf, but I do encourage you to read his work. He's published in a variety of uh, uh, periodicals, including Global Americans. And if you get a chance to read any of that and catch up on some of his research, I guarantee you, uh, you'll leave the room feeling a little bit better informed. Uh, whether or not you feel <laughs> a little more positive or a little more pessimistic in the end is going to be entirely up to you. Uh, so uh, definitely would like to thank Dr. Ellis for being on the show, and we hope to have him again in the future along with several other speakers uh, to go over everything from geopolitics, business, security, and even social impact in the Latin America and Caribbean region. Uh, thanks again for listening, and have a good night. Thank you for listening to Latin American Intersections. If you enjoy our podcast or find it insightful, please be sure to share with your friends and colleagues. Hasta la próxima. See you next time. big thank you to Kasim Sultan of Sad Boy Music, who is working diligently to improve our audio as we develop our production techniques. Sad Boy Music offers competitive rates for recording, editing, mixing, mastering, music production, video editing, and motion graphic design. You can follow Sad Boy Music on social media at 5ADB0iMusic.